Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open it to Exodus chapter 12. Now, if you're new to church, maybe you have a copy of the Bible, maybe you have it on your phone. But if you're new to the faith, if you're new to church, Exodus chapter 12 is in the Old Testament. In fact, Exodus is the second book. Is that right? Genesis, Exodus. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I was afraid I was leading you astray for a second. Yeah. It's the second book of the Bible. So it's in the Old Testament, second book. So it's somewhere near the left-hand side of the Bible. We're going to be studying in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, let me tell you where we're at, where we've... Where we're at in the point when we pick up the scripture, this is what's called the, the plagues of Egypt. So here's what's happened. God's people have found themselves in slavery in Egypt. Now that's a wake-up call for us to remind us that life isn't always perfect for God's people. And in fact, it's important for us to understand that Christians, people who have surrendered their life to Jesus, were not exempt from life. Bad things can still happen to godly people. And that's where we find ourselves when we're reading the scripture. God's people have found themselves literally slaves in Egypt. Now they've been crying out to God. And because God is a God who pays attention, because God is a God who cares about the humans that he created, the scripture says that he saw their suffering and he heard their cries and he responded to them. And if you remember anything about the Bible, you probably remember a character by the name of Moses. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush and he said, Moses, I want you to go to the Pharaoh and I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, the Pharaoh didn't hear that message very well. And the problem is the Pharaoh had a ton of power. I mean, the Pharaoh was the most powerful human being on the planet. Now, I know preachers exaggerate. That's not an exaggeration. He truly was the most powerful human being on the planet. The only problem is he paled in comparison to the power of God. And he gave him a chance. God gave Pharaoh a chance. Moses went to him and he said, let him go. This is where the plagues began to happen, right? The plagues began to happen because his Pharaoh's heart was hard and he said, I will not. There was a plague. And the first plague was not uh, as intense as the other plagues. But as it kept going, Pharaoh continued to say no and no and no. The, the, the plagues began to intensify so that we get to the place where God is speaking to his people about this last plague. That's what we're picking up. We are on the back end of the plagues, and all of a sudden we're discovering in Exodus chapter 12 what it is that God has in mind for the very last plague. So look with me, if you would, in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at about 13 verses, and here's what the scripture says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and he's the nearest neighbor, take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make 
your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep, you may take it from the goats, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. This is where it gets a little squeamish. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, ready to leave quickly. And you shall eat it quickly, in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Here's the description, right, of this last, of this last plague. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I was, I was traumatized as a kid. You're thinking, that says a lot. No, Christmas time. Well, probably all of us are, actually. Do, do you remember, maybe this still happens, did you remember getting gifts at Christmas time and the person's watching you open them and you're just thinking to yourself, oh, I hope I like it, please. I hope I like it. If I don't like it, oh, I just hope that I can freak it. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? I mean, have you ever opened something and you just go, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? I remember... Five or six years old, uh, I was growing up in North Louisiana. We lived in sticks. I hardly ever wore shoes, okay, to my defense. And somebody gave me for Christmas a shoehorn. <laughs> I had no idea what this thing was. But I had known because we learned from our moms and our dads that you better smile and you better say thank you. And you might even want to say, I've been wanting one of these, right? I couldn't say it. I had no idea what it was. And, and so I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking to myself, what am I supposed to do with this thing? Is it something for hunting? Is it something for fishing? Because those were the two categories that I thought of in my life at six years old as a boy growing up in Louisiana. What in the world am I supposed to do with this? Well, here's why I share that story. Sometimes when we read this passage as believers in 2019, that's how we feel. What am I supposed to do with this? I mean, we're talking about being in slavery and then taking a lamb, and I don't even, I get my lambs from the market basket, right? I don't know where to get a lamb from, and all of a sudden they bring it into their house, and, and then you kill the lamb, and then you're spreading blood all over the house. What in the world am I supposed to do with this? Well, here's what we're going to do with this. We're going to look this morning about how the Passover, this story that we just studied, 
how it connects with the gospel. Now the Passover in and of itself, obviously as you can uh, discern, had an important historical value for the people of God. And so it will be easy for us to understand that it's important in and of itself because it tells a story about our spiritual forefathers. And it talks about how God came to the rescue. We were singing about how God is faithful. This is a story about God's faithfulness. The people found themselves in slavery and their God liberated them. With great power, he showed to Pharaoh that you may be the strongest human on this planet, but I'm the God who lives in heaven. And my people will go free. But I do think that it might have just a little more meaning for us if we understand the connection that it has with the gospel and the way that it points us to the person of Jesus. And as we think about Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday and the crucifixion and the conquered grave, I want for us to understand that even in the Old Testament, these ideas were rattling around and were beginning to take form, even at the Passover. So if you have your notes, you see that we're going to talk about five things that the Passover has in common with the Gospel. We're going to do them in three different sections. The first two sections, we're going to look at two at a time. And then the last one, we're going to look at it separately. So what does the Passover and the resurrection necessarily have in common? Well, first of all, the quality and the destiny of the sacrifice. Now, the quality, we, we just read in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, we read that the quality was that this this lamb wants to be without blemish. And we understand from reading the Gospels, from reading the New Testament writings, that Jesus himself was a human being that was without sin, meaning without blemish. Now, if you like to make notes and go back and study for, for, uh, to study further, write down Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. It says Jesus is not a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he's one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when we look in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, and we look at this story in the Passover where God's people are in slavery and, and God is going to release them from slavery and He's planning this last plague and He's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb that doesn't have blemish, is perfect, it's faultless, that points us all the way to the person of Jesus because He truly was the human being with no fault, with no blemish, with no sin. But not only is it the quality, but it's also the destiny of the sacrifice. Because in the Old Testament Passover and in the New Testament sacrifice, death had to occur. You see, the Scripture says in Exodus chapter 12 that you're to find a lamb without blemish And it will die. It will be sacrificed. In fact, if you want to go back and look, look with me in Exodus chapter 12. If you're making notes, just jot this down. Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. It says, you'll keep it until the 14th day of the month. 
when the whole assembly, everybody, everybody who is participating, on the 14th day, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So not only do you have quality, but you have destiny. That lamb was to be perfect and it was to be sacrificed. There's a scripture in Isaiah 53 talking about the coming of Jesus. And it says, Surely He's borne our griefs, He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him as stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see, the Bible is clear that not only was Jesus sinless, but He was also sacrificed. He was crucified on the cross. And not only was He put on the cross, but He stayed there until He died. He was crushed and crucified for our sins. And all we're trying to do right now is to see the similarities between the Passover lamb and the person of Jesus. And so far we've looked at two similarities. We've looked at the fact that the lamb had to be without blemish. And a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the fact that Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the perfect sacrifice given. But we go a step further and we don't just talk about the quality of the sacrifice and what's going to happen to the sacrifice, but what happens after the lamb was killed. Well, two more things. You have application and reception is what we have. Application, we we saw it and we mentioned it just a second ago, that when the lamb was killed, they were to take the blood and they were to put it on the doorposts of the home. Now, that may not sound very attractive to you, and I will tell you that it's not very attractive to me. I don't have blood spread on the doorpost of my home. But that was the assignment from God to God's people that not only is this sacrifice going to occur, but you have to take the blood and apply it to your home. You see, it it would have been a drastic night if the sacrifice would have occurred in the home and the blood not applied. And so you have to have application. Isn't it the same with Jesus? I heard a sermon one time that said most people in the United States of America miss heaven by 12 inches. And I thought, now he's got my attention. And as a preacher, I'm always looking for a good hook, you know, so I'm listening to this guy. And he says, now think about it. Most people know about the sacrifice of Jesus, but they've never applied it. And I thought, how true is that? Think about the Passover. Think about how awful it would have been if some household would have gone through all of those steps to get it right. They would have found the lamb, searched it for hours, found it without blemish, brought it into their home, fed it, kept it for 14 days at the appointed time with all of the rest of God's people, they would have slaughtered that lamb and then fail to apply the blood. The angel of death would have visited their home. Application. Listen to me, friends. If you think 
that intellectually believing in the gospel is enough. It's not. The gospel must be applied to our lives. I don't want to steal the thunder from this video testimony that's coming in a couple of weeks. But I said in the comments this morning with a young lady who had given her life to Christ and wants to stand before you, church family, and be baptized to declare that she belongs to the Lord Jesus. And she she shared the story of growing up in a Christian home and yet not affected by the gospel. But then one day God worked in her life and she surrendered her life to Him. You see, that has to be our story. Is the blood of Jesus enough? Yes, it is enough. But we have to receive it. We have to apply it to our life. Just as in the Passover, they had to apply the blood, so it must be applied. The Scripture says, For all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's important for us to apply it. Secondly, the reception of the sacrifice. Look with me, uh, if you would, and notice what God says to these people about receiving the sacrifice. Back in Exodus chapter 12, it says, verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. Don't boil it, but roast it. You know, one time I was teaching this to a group of uh, third graders. You can imagine teaching this passage to a group of third graders. It wasn't one of the smartest choices I'd made in my ministry. But I'm trying to teach this story to the third graders. And I'm just praying, Lord, help me to communicate it in a way that they really get it. You know, like going all in on applying the blood and making sure that the sacrifice wasn't for it. And then one of the kids says, now this is Texas for you. Oh, so it was like a barbecue. (laughs) That's when you know you're in Texas, when they look at Exodus 12 and think it's a barbecue. So I said, yeah, I like a barbecue. And I just kept going, right? But do you notice what, what is supposed to happen? The blood is to be applied to the home and there to re, get this, to receive the sacrifice. They're to take the sacrifice in. And it's something that they do together and it's something where they stop and they take the time and they take the sacrifice and they ingest it. They bring it in to who they are. You know, we're taking the communion today. And it's no coincidence that thousands of years later, we are still thinking, proclaiming, receiving that gift of the sacrifice. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26 at the Lord's Supper. Now, the the first Lord's Supper, you understand was a Passover meal. They were commemorating Exodus chapter 12. And he takes and he breaks the bread and he hands it to him and he says, take and eat. This is my body. And so he he infuses a powerful new understanding of what it means to celebrate the Passover for Jewish people. And for us 
All of these years later, we still celebrate this. We understand, in other words, that the blood is to be applied and we're to receive the sacrifice, which is why we do it every month. Now, is this bread literally the body of Jesus? No, it's not. It's bread. And is the juice literally the blood of Jesus? No, it's not. It's, but what we're doing is we are reenacting, receiving that gift of the sacrifice in our own personal lives. We're reenacting the application and the reception of that sacrifice. Now, the last one is this, and then we're going to pivot. We're going to turn. We're going to look at some application. But before we do that, I want for us to understand the results of the sacrifice. Because up to this point, we're just looking at these really interesting connections between the Passover and the gospel. And my friends, I have to tell you some of the most important things that you might hear from me are going to be said in the next five minutes because there are two results of the sacrifice and the Passover. The first result is that they are saved from death. In fact, that's what the scripture says. Go, if you still have, if you still have it turned, go back and look in Exodus chapter 12. Here's what it says. When I see the blood, when I, when, when the angel of death passes over and the angel sees the blood there on the doorpost, so the sacrifice has happened the way God said for it to happen and, and they've taken the blood and they've applied it, right? And it says that when I see the blood applied to the doorpost of your home, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That was one of the results. They were saved from death the second result is that they were freed from slavery because once this happened we didn't read it because it you have to read a long section of passage to get there but listen to me when everybody woke up the next day i want you to understand that pharaoh said as quickly as you can i want you to get out of egypt you see god not only saved them from death in the passover but he liberated them from slavery those two results are not just important for God's people all of these years ago. Now you might be here this morning saying, I'm no slave, I do what I want. Do you now? You know, we're a slave to a lot of things. And I could step outside of the church world and talk about non-believers being slaves to sin. And non-believers being slaves to all of these desires that uh, that uh, bubble up inside of us and move us in all types of ungodly ways. But I have to stop before I do that and meddle in the church just a little bit. Because although we have the power of the gospel inside of us, if we're real with ourselves, sometimes we allow ourselves to be enslaved by things that are ungodly. And we have the power of God with us. Now... Here's the interesting part. These people were God's people. They were in covenant with God. They were seen by God. They were loved by God. And yet, they were living in slavery and they needed the power of God to release them. What a gospel story. That when we surrender our life to Jesus... He saves us from death. And He releases us from the power and the slavery of sin. Now, does that mean that God's people never sin anymore? Well, 
in a word, no. Because if you're new to the church, I can tell you that whoever you're sitting close to has sinned lately. (laughs) And I can tell you how. No, I can't. I can't. (laughs) People get up and start leaving. No, but, but here's what I want you to understand. The power and the slavery is broken. We don't have to live in that anymore. We still make bad choices. We still get carried away, but we can always come back. We do not have to be enslaved by sin. Are we oppressed by it? Yes. Do we struggle with temptation? Yes. Do we commit sin? Yes. But does it have a hold on us? No. No. The result of the sacrifice was to save us from death and to free us from slavery. And some people wonder, why do we read the Old Testament? Because it has the gospel written inside of it from start to finish. Now, what about us? What do we learn that we can take from the truth and the accuracy of God's Word and import it into 2019 and give us some really good direction on how to live our life and how to think about God and how to think about ourselves. In other words, what does this passage do for us today? Three things before we close today. The first is this. It teaches us that the power of God is sufficient and it always has been sufficient. God's power has always been sufficient to do exactly what it is that God wants to do. You go all the way back to the garden. You can even go back before that. Go back to the, to the brief blank page spot before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And God said, I'm going to create. And He spoke things into being. His power was sufficient to bring creation. His power was sufficient to create human life. His power was sufficient for Adam and Eve. His power was sufficient in, in, in every place in the Scripture. And we looked, at, we looked at one spot this morning and we saw that God's power was sufficient. It wasn't difficult for God to do what He wanted to do. He simply said, I will release my people from slavery. Now Pharaoh will have to decide how far this goes. But I will release my people from slavery. God's power has always been sufficient. And I want you to understand something this morning. It is sufficient for your life. Isn't it interesting somehow that sometimes we can learn all of these theological things, but when it's time to apply them to our life, it can be so difficult. You may be here this morning saying, Yes, Zach, Zach is right. God's power is sufficient. And you may be looking to the person to your left saying, It's sufficient for you. And to the right, it's sufficient for you. But then when you think about yourself, you begin to think about all of the reasons that it's not sufficient. All of the reasons that you uh, can't get God's uh, power and His blessing in your life. And I don't want to get wrapped up. I just want to deliver this point. (laughs) Because this is a soapbox of mine and I'll keep you here till three. (laughs) And I know that's not possible. (laughs) Listen to me. Oftentimes we think of our history and we think of our brokenness and we say to ourselves, you see, 
God's power is sufficient for you. But you don't know where I've been. And so He's good enough in your life. But I've made some bad mistakes. And I don't deserve God's power. None of us do. But we struggle, don't we, with what we know about our past. And we convince ourselves. Or maybe it's the enemy convincing you that your past is so strong that God's power can't redeem who you are. You convince yourself that your history, your mistakes, your sin, all of the depraved things that you've done in your past is too powerful for God, the God who broke the wheel of the Pharaoh to deliver you. You may be thinking that what you did last night is so inappropriate that certainly God's power is not strong enough to set me free. I want to prove to you this morning that that's a lie. And I want to do it by illustrating it in a very creative way. But to do that, I need somebody to help me. And I haven't strategically planted anybody already. So if somebody doesn't volunteer to come up here and help me, it's going to be an awkward 10 minutes. So can some, could somebody put their hand up in the air and volunteer to come help me explain why it isn't true that uh, God's power is not sufficient for you? Thank you. Who is that? Tim? Always count on Tim. Always count on Tim. Tim, you're going to be blessed today, man, because coming up here and helping me is going to get you a cool 20 bucks. (laughs) Oh, yeah, now you want to come up. I didn't tell my wife that I was doing this illustration, but it's for the Lord. Tim, um, wouldn't you like to have this 20 bucks? Sure. Yes, sure. Um, this 20 bucks is out of the ATM. They're always crisp dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you want this 20 bucks. What if, what if I did this? Now you see I just tore it. Sure. You still want it? You can have the small piece and I'll take the big piece. Yeah. Yeah. You take you would take this still. Oh, okay. But it's been ripped. Yeah. It's okay? Sure. What if I fold it? Would you still want it? Yeah. What if I crumbled it? Would you still want it? Sure. What if I stomped on it? Would you still want it then? So I'm not going to do this, but even if I spit on it, would you still want it? Uh, mm, I'd be thinking about that one. But would you want it? Sure. So the question is, why would if if I tore it, folded it, crumbled it up, and stomped on it, why would you still want it? Because I know the value. Mm. Mm. You see, some of you are like this. And you can't imagine anybody seeing value in you. 
but it's still worth 20 bucks. And you may be torn and you may be stepped on and crumbled up. And to God, you're just as valuable as when you were the crisp, unbroken $20 that we began with. Tim, I was serious about you taking that 20 bucks. I appreciate you. Go ahead. We appreciate that. You see, we understand the doctrine of the Bible, but we fail to really let it penetrate who we are because we've been crumbled up a little bit. And we can't imagine anybody wanting us torn and broken and stomped on. But the reality is you are just as valuable to God the way you are right now. His power is sufficient through your history and through your brokenness. But that brings us to that second point. I want you to look at it. That second point. Not only has God's power always been sufficient, but you have to respond and application is mandatory. How foolish would Tim have been to not take the gift that I was given him. The courage to come up here. Had no idea what I was going to do with him. In the end, I extend a gift to him. But what did he have to do? He had to respond to it. Response is mandatory. If you haven't responded to the gift of Jesus... I'm not asking you to stand up and give a reason. But can you, in your own heart, identify why? Why haven't you? The last thing that I want to share with you before we pray and receive the communion is that freedom always demands faith and trust. God's people were in slavery and God released them. And do you remember what happened to God's people? They were thrust into a reality in which they had to listen to God and trust Him and obey Him. It was a necessity for their existence in this free life that they now lived in. In other words, it wasn't that all of their questions were answered. In fact, none of them were. All they knew is that they were free. They could leave the land of Egypt. What was going to happen to them? They didn't know. They had to trust God for that. What were they going to eat? They didn't know. They had to trust God for that. What was their identity going to be? They didn't know. They had to trust God for that. What were they going to do the next day? They didn't know. They had to trust God for that. And so there is a real thing that needs to be said that when God releases us from slavery and He saves us from death we are walking out into a world of faith and trust we don't know what happens tomorrow but we know who holds tomorrow and we can trust him and we can walk in faith we're going to close this morning by opening the altars for you to come and pray if you like to prepare your hearts to receive communion in a moment i'm going to ask you to stand I'm going to give a brief prayer and then we're going to just open the altars for you to come. We're going to give you a couple of minutes. It won't be short, but it won't be extended, but we want to invite you to come. If you want to kneel and pray where you are, just I want you to respond to God however you feel called to respond to God. Prepare your hearts 
to receive communion, then we'll finish with prayer and we'll distribute the elements. But would you stand and let's pray together. Lord, how powerful is the story of the Passover. Thank you that you're stronger than any human being. Thank you that you love us, that you hear our cry. Thank you for a greater sacrifice than the Lamb of Exodus 12. You, yourself. The cross is the perfect sacrifice. We apply it. We receive it. We celebrate it. We thank you for it. Touch our hearts, Lord, as we pray. Prepare ourselves for communion. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.